Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Ezra? And when you get to Ezra, find your way to the fifth chapter. So we're going to be in Ezra chapter 5. Today we are continuing a series that has been on hold for a, a bit. Uh, the holidays hit and other things and whatnot. But we have been studying our way through uh, the post-exilic section of the Bible. Uh, the post-exilic section of the Bible, if I could summarize it in a phrase, it, it is all about God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises, and hence I've titled this sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill. Uh, we're moving through, as I said, the post-exilic section of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we're embarking to get through this section as a church and, and to walk away from it understanding this very important section of Scripture and history of God's people. So in the Hebrew Bible, there are six books that cover this period. Three of them are historical narratives, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the other three of the six are prophetic books, Haggai, or as we say, Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We began our study, this Faithful to Fulfill series, with the historical book of Ezra. Ezra, this historical narrative, opens with a historic decree that is given by a historical figure, Cyrus the Great. Uh, he was a powerful emperor of the Persian Empire. In, in fact, his remains are still in the heart of where his empire once thrived. Let me show you a, a picture of where his remains are held in uh, modern-day Iran. Now, according to the ancient historian Plutarch, his epitaph read as follows. I'll put it in front of you here. O oh, man... Whoever you are and wherever you come from, for I know you will, I am Cyrus, who won the Persians their empire. Do not therefore begrudge me this bit of earth that covers my bones. Now, I show you this tomb to illustrate what ought to be obvious, namely that this is history. Skeptics of the Bible want to act like uh, this, this book of ours is full of fairy tales. You know, the Bible's just full of fairy tales, and it's been translated and translated, and, and you can't trust it. You see, it's full of fairy tales, but nothing could be further from the truth. This book is a historical record of historical facts. In the case of Ezra, it opens with Cyrus and his decree to permit the Jewish people to return to their homeland and rebuild their lives, including their temple. You see, the Assyrian and Babylonian empires devastated the Jewish people and destroyed their land. They destroyed their land, destroyed their temple, destroyed their lives, busted it all up. Now Babylon, in particular, killed and kidnapped many Jewish people for slaves in their land. So they, they just crushed everything, killed a bunch of people, and those who were uh, alive after the fact, they just took them back to Babylon and held them as slaves, as prisoners of war, as, as, as uh, prostitutes, as and they made them work in, in sex trade and building their economy and all the rest. It was a, hor a horrible experience to watch your families be killed and then be kidnapped and held as slaves in this foreign land. Well, Babylon's time had come to an end. Uh, Persia was the new empire in town who took over these former imperial powers. And with it, the emperor Cyrus wasn't tripping on the Jewish people. He was somewhat, you might say, of a benevolent dictator or a politician uh, who was sort of seeking the favor of those who had been subjugated in the past, and so he was going to let them free. In fact, speaking of ancient empires and dictators and whatnot, I was at Ralph's, of all places, swiping my card to give the church some points, uh, plug for that, and I saw, you know, I'm a sucker for candies and stuff at the end, and I saw this, and I had to get it, National Geographic Atlas of the Ancient World. And, you know, smack dab in the middle, we got a big old Cyrus section talking about this guy, Cyrus, the guy we're studying on Sunday. He's in Ralph's, okay? So, uh, again, we're not making this stuff up. This is not the National Enquirer. This is National Geographic, for Pete's sake. So around 539 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree for the Jewish people that had been jacked by the Babylonians who were in, in, in the empire that was once the Babylonian Empire, but now it's the Persian Empire. Cyrus is like, whatever, y'all can go home. And that's recorded in Ezra chapter 1. It's also recorded in 2 Chronicles 36. Archaeologists in 1879 unearthed a clay cylinder in Mesopotamia that actually dates back to this era in Cyrus. It is known today as the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's in the British Museum in London. Here's a picture of it. If you ever get to go to London, you have to go to the British Museum. There's a lot of artifacts there that corroborate the things that we have inside of our Bible, and this is one of them. Whenever I'm in London, I love to just go down there and stare at the Cyrus Cylinder. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And you'll see, 
tourists from around the world who make their way and they stand in front of it and they're like, this is in the Bible. Yeah, and it's in the British Museum too. So the cylinder has writing on it that is about Cyrus. Cyrus in the writing is depicted as a, a king from a long line of kings and it talks about his defeat of the Babylonians, specifically the Babylonian king Nabonidus. Uh, Nabonidus is described on this little cylinder as an immoral oppressor of his own people. You might say, why do they write it on a cylinder? Because you take this cylinder and then you roll out some clay and then you roll the cylinder on it and then bam, you get a little tablet that's high tech back in the day. That's like a Kindle. You know, you just roll it out and then you got a nice print of, you know, uh, ancient political propaganda. So, so it, this cylinder talks about how Cyrus is the man. Nabonidus is a, a straight up buster, a moral oppressor. Talks about how he oppressed even his own people. So the cylinder is a bit of a propaganda piece. Uh, it's, it's, it's politics. It's also religion. Uh, it, it says that Cyrus was elected and empowered by specifically the chief Babylonian god Marduk. So that's an insult. I wiped, I wiped you guys out. I took you over. Your king, your king is, a, you know, uh, is, is Nabonidus, the buster, and your chief god Marduk actually elected and empowered me to take over. And what did I bring? I brought peace. I brought peace. That's what this little cylinder is talking about. So because of Cyrus, the cylinder says the Babylonians then actually thrived and their, their lives improved. And the cylinder also talks about how enslaved, displaced people, who we're talking about in Ezra, enslaved, displaced people, the Jewish people wiped out by the Babylonians, when Persia came in, uh, Cyrus is like, you guys can go home. You can go home. My, my beef is not with you. You guys can go home. In fact, the cylinder talks about how Cyrus worked to restore their temples and their sanctuaries across the empire. So again, to the, oh, the Bible, oh, it's been translated and corrupted. And, you know, if, you, if you're learning your information, w watching YouTube videos or Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, conspiracy theory or whatever, get your feet back in reality. This is historical stuff corroborated by things through the sands of times. This fits with Ezra. Now, where we left off in our... Uh, study of this era of history, we have worked from Ezra 1 all the way up to the fifth chapter. And if you weren't here as a part of that series, it's all online, it's all free, you can go back and listen, and I'm giving you introduction today so you are caught up to speed. I ask you to turn to chapter 5 of Ezra, draw your eyes at verse 1. What does it say? When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied. Okay, so this reaches the point in our study where we last left off as we were moving through the post-exilic text with the mentions of Haggai and Zechariah uh, when we were moving through Ezra. Remember I said there's six books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So we started with the historical narrative of Ezra. We got up to the fifth chapter, and because in chapter 5, verse 1, he mentions the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, we then paused the historical narrative here, and then we jumped over to, to see those. You know, like if you're watching YouTube or something, you're like, oh, this is really interesting. And then they bring up something. It's like, oh, so-and-so said. And then you're like, let me pause, because I want to go over and see that. And then I'll come back to you and pick up where we left off. So that's what we've done. We were watching the YouTube video of Ezra's uh, you know, narrative. And we got to chapter 5. He brings up these two prophets. So I said, hey, pause. And then we, 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 we then jumped over to Zechariah. We jumped over to Haggai and we studied them. So we wrapped those two prophets and now we are back where we left off. So by way of introduction, here's a little chart up here for you so you can orient yourself in terms of timeline. This historic era was a great time. It was a time of expansion. It was a time of transition. It was a time where hope is, is moving. You, 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 you've been crushed. You've been crushed. But, but, now, but now the phoenix is rising out of the ashes. The people are coming out of captivity. They're coming out of exile. That's why we call it the post-exilic era, because it's post after the exile. It is a season of homecoming to rebuild what was lost. Uh, it is, it is a, an incredible time. And to be clear, what was lost was not due to foreign powers. It was not due to Assyria and Babylon. What was lost wasn't due to pagan powers. It was due to the providential work of God. God was actually disciplining His people purifying his people, bringing about a remnant in order to restore. You see, sin brought with it a consequence. And so if you're in the pre-exile and you, you see, oh wow, the people of God are so unfaithful to God, and yet God is, God is faithful and God is love and he, he keeps forgiving them. He keeps pouring out his mercy and pouring out his grace. 
And now in His grace, God is bringing them back and calling them to rebuild what was lost. They were, they, they were back to rebuild not, not, not just the land itself and everything else, but, but first and foremost, the priority that they were given to was to rebuild the temple of God. So as you can see on the, the, the timeline up here, they come back and you can see on the timeline here that God brings them back to the land to build the temple and sadly, they didn't do it. So Ezra and the prophets explained that this was due to their complacency. Uh, we, in the beginning of our worship service today, we read from Haggai. And we saw in the opening chapter of Haggai how the prophet says, what are you guys doing? You've been brought back to the land, and instead of building the temple, what are you doing? You're making Home Depot trips, and you're hooking up your cribs instead of hooking up the, the, the temple of God. There was complacency. There was procrastination. There was sin in general. The prophets told them it was time to repent and rebuild. And that said, I was tempted to title my sermon, Build Back Better, but I figured, you know, that might not go over so well. People, are, people get triggered easy. It's like, oh, you know, what's, what's going on with Pastor Matt? So I'm not even going to touch that. So I, I just very creatively titled the sermon, uh, Back to Work. Back to Work. It's time to get back to work. My last sermon in Ezra, where we wrapped the fourth chapter and got up to 5-1, and we hit pause. And in the last sermon in Ezra, I, I titled that sermon, Calling It Quits. Because that's what they did. They called it quits. And now it was time to get going again. Time to get back to work. Time to get started. I'm a you know, child, of the, a child of, the, of, the, of the 80s. A Los Angeles 80s kid, 90s kid. MC Hammer had that song in the 80s. Let's get it started. Oh, right. So when I, when I pick up chapter 5, I just, I just picture, I don't know, a guy doing the hammer dance. Like, let's get it started. He's got diaper pants and all that stuff. And they're like, all right, let's go. Not just get it started, let's get it restarted because God brought them back and they had, they had let 15, 16 years pass and they're not doing anything. Go, look, this is a horrible case of procrastination. And, and we can't sit over these people because, look, you know, there's a lot of things in our lives we procrastinate over. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't you know, pull up at my house without seeing things I'm procrastinating over. There's a front light that's busted. There's projects everywhere. I'm like, ah, oh, I'll get to it. I, you know, open my emails. Oh, my gosh, there's just stuff I'm procrastinating. There's, you know, step on the scale. Yeah, I'm procrastinating on getting back to the gym. There's all kinds of things in our lives that we procrastinate on. And those sound like silly things. Let's consider the godly things. You know, as a parent, procrastinating on, uh, oh, you know, discipling your kids or as a spouse, particularly you, you men in the room, of leading your families and making sure they're here in worship, and making sure your, your home is a place of worship. We procrastinate on so much. And so as we come to the text, we want to be careful not to be anachronistic snobs who look back at them and go, you guys, God gave you all of this, and, and you're procrastinating on doing the thing that He's asked you to do. I think in the book of James, where James tells us that the, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin. God has revealed all kinds of things to us all. Things that we should be doing that we are not. And so my prayer this morning is that as we listen to the text, we hear Christ speak and calling those things out that we would leave this service today reinvigorated to get it started. Oh, oh, oh MC Hammer time. All right, uh, Ezra, chapter 4, verse 24. I asked you to turn to 5, but 4 is right there. So look at chapter 4, verse 24. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. So, so, so now we've, we've actually moved from, we've moved from Cyrus, and now we're getting into Darius. We, we, we've gotten into Darius. Darius also is in the National Geographic Atlas thing. So again, we're, we're dealing with history. If you are unfamiliar with this history, let me put the Persian kings in front of you on the PowerPoint so that you, you get an idea of the names and you kind of see what's going on here. Darius, Doriavish in the Hebrew, uh, Darius in the Greek, which we translate over to Darius into English, was a very famous king in the ancient world. If you are an ancient Near Eastern uh, history geek, you know that while Darius ruled, uh, he, he, he ruled through great political mayhem. There's, there was a lot of madness going on at the time of his rule. The second year of his reign, however, was, was quite cool. It was a peaceful and prosperous era. According to Dr. Mervyn uh, Brenneman, Darius 
took the Persian Empire after the Civil War following the death of Cambyses. As often happens in such times of uncertainty, the empire was threatened with dissolution. There were revolts in every direction, but by Darius' second year, he had put down the rebellions and stabilized the empire, except for the trouble in Egypt, 518-519. Under his rule, the Persian Empire reached its greatest power and splendor. So this power, this splendor, this prosperity would have made Darius uh, less suspicious and paranoid of his subjects because, you know, things are going well. So for the Jewish people in the empire, you know, it, 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 if things are good, you're, you know, you're not set tripping on people. So things are fine. Dictators typically, when things are fine, they tend to be chill and benevolent. But if something is going on in the culture, dictators often will look at subjugated people and blame them for the problems. Uh, this happened in Rome. Uh, when Rome was slaughtering Christians for the first 300 years, as Rome, the empire, was falling apart, many of the pagan politicians said, it's the Christians' fault. It's their fault. The subjugated and the oppressed, the oppressors will blame them for, for the, the, the problems that are going on in the culture. And so, so here we have a time of relative prosperity and peace. Uh, the Jewish people then, and this going back to home, would still be in, in a place of favor. But nevertheless, there would still be haters. Because haters, you know, haters are just, they're just haters. So there's people drinking the haterade. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Look at verse 1. We're going to get into chapter 5, but context is key. Ch chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. Skip to verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. Verse 5 and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus of Persia until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So in, in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 4, we see that they, the haters are all over them, and the haters start writing emails, okay? They start writing letters of accusation and sending them to the king of Persia. Ezra gets a copy of the letter, and he actually references it. If you look at verse 11, we, say, we, we read there in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter which was sent to him. And, and, and it continues with your eyes, if you're following the text in chapter 4, up to verse 16. And we see in this letter that they accuse Israel of being a rebellious people, a dishonorable people, stoking fears in the king that they would turn on them if he lets them rebuild. So you see the propaganda. These people. Racism, ethnocentrism, classism, power. These people. You know what these people are going to do? And so, so playing on ethnocentrism, playing on political fears and whatever, these people, if you let them rebuild. And so now we move into the text and we see on your outline this point, the people halted. We saw at the end of chapter 4 that the, the people were halted. There's some paranoia in Cyrus. He wants them to stop. He wants them to stop. We see in these letters fake news about Israel's past, uh, fake news about Israel's borders, Enemies love to misrepresent and malign in order to gain an upper hand. Aren't we glad that politicians don't do that anymore today, you know, right? There's always cover-up, there's always lie, there's always more video footage that comes out, and, and, and each side will, will carefully manicure the footage to fit their own narrative. So, so you see this going on, and, and you, you see Israel is stopped, and in verse 24, as we saw, we learned that they take a break from building until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. This tells us that God's people took a, a break, and that break lasted 15 to 16 years. You ever work on a job, and you got co-workers who, uh, you know, when, when it's break time, you get that little 15-minute break or whatever, or the lunch break, they, uh, they take a little longer. You, ever, you have that phenomenon at work ever? Ever have co-workers even, you know, just kind of just don't come back, and you're like, hey, what's going on? While the boss is away, the mice will play. You have people taking long breaks. Well, this is a long break for sure. 15 to 16 years. Uh, two, two of my kids, I got a bunch of them, but two of them are that age, you know, 15, 16. I mean, a lot can happen in 15, 16 years. I mean, that's a whole lot of life. You haven't done anything in 15, 16 years? Nothing worth writing about? I mean, again, we all procrastinate, okay? So, you know, we're not standing over the text, but, but man... This is incredible. God had rescued them, and this, this is what's going on. It kind of harkens back to the Exodus, as Israel was rescued from slavery generations before this, and how then they, they turn and they forget what God has delivered you from. And this, this is reason for us all to pause and think in our own lives, the darkness that God has delivered us from, 
and how quick we are to forget, how quick we are to become complacent, how quick we are to stop living uh, radical lives for God and just settling into the mundane and the normal. Well, God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to call the people to repentance and faith, so we move from the people halted on your outline to the prophetic hope. God used the word of the prophets to mobilize the people. They stopped, and through the prophets of, of God, they said, let's get it started. Come on, you guys, let's get it started. And so the word of the prophet was like a seed that began to grow. Haggai started prophesying or preaching on August 29th, 520 B.C. By September 21st, the people started building again. So his, his sermons were, were working. Uh, that's every preacher's hope, that the sermons work. And as a preacher, you can't see if it's working or not. You know, it's like, I, I don't know if this is working. I can't see it, but time will tell. Haggai preached four messages. We finished studying those. Again, they're online if you missed them. Those, those sermons confronted the sins of the people and challenged them to get back to work to rebuild the temple. Two months into Haggai's first sermon, God sent the prophet Zechariah, who begins preaching. So the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, they overlap, and, and they're working together to bring revival to the people of God. Ezra 1.5, again, let's look at it. When the prophets, Haggai, the prophet, Zechariah, the son of Edu, when these guys prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Let's pause. In the prophecies and the preachings of these two great post-exilic prophets, we see the importance of the temple of God. Uh, for visualization, if you look up here, let me show you a, a picture of the temple that was lost. Now, understand theologically, the temple was a porthole of the heavens to the earth. When, when you come to the temple, you're standing on sacred ground, and it, it, it is as a porthole where the God of heaven is manifesting himself in a unique way in the earth. The temple pictures back to Eden in the book of Genesis, to paradise lost. You see, when God created the earth, he walked in paradise with Adam and Eve. Uh, the, the paradise was a temple. He dwelt in the garden. He was, he was in the garden with them. Now, humanity sinned against God, and so they were removed from the temple of the garden, paradise lost. When God called Israel into union with himself, he gave them a tabernacle, a tent of flesh made of animal skins, which God dwelled in. And later, of course, God would dwell in flesh, this time not animal, but human, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. So paradise lost in the garden. God in his grace elects Abram and Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel, and he gives them a new temple, this tent of animal flesh, which is a portable worship center. This portable worship center is then made as they come to the land and the land is developed. The tabernacle turns to a temple, no longer made of skin, but now made of stone. And God dwelled there as this porthole of the heavens to the earth, looking back on paradise lost, and giving a glimpse of paradise being restored as there God's presence was, just as God's presence was in the garden in days of old. And, and there Israel is, is called to be a priesthood to the world, and, and, and priests serve as mediators in a temple, and in the temple is, is the presence of God. And so as the priesthood of the earth and, and the temple as the temple for all the nations of the earth, the temple isn't just for Israel, it's for the evangelism of the nations that the God of Israel would be the God of all nations, reconciling the people to himself through his people of promise. So the temple is a house of worship. The temple is a house of salvation. The temple reminded the people of the wages of sin. So there's sacrifice that takes place in the temple where innocent life of, of, of animals is taken and you're reminded, look, the wages of sin is death. Death. And we're reminded of the mercy of God that he would receive a sacrifice in our place. Innocence given in place for the guilty. Now, the giving of sacrifices is not mere ritual. It is more than a matter of obedience. In Scripture, we see that obedience is tied to the love of God. As Jesus said, he who loves me obeys me. Hence, their calling to the temple, their calling to be a priesthood to the nations, isn't just evangelism, it's not just obedience, it's, it's not mere ritual, it's love. It's love. Israel's halt on the temple was thus not a symptom of laziness, but love.
uh, like look at moose or whatever you do up there, go ski or whatever. Like we don't, you know, we're not like, oh, you know, the Canadians are going to jack us. We don't have enemies on our borders the way that Israel did, ready to pounce, ready to destroy, having a track record of crushing your people. So we need to put ourselves in this history and just imagine that you're from a foreign place, your, your oppressors are over you, Babylon the enemy enslaved your sons, raped your daughters, your grandpas and your grandmoms, they looted your homes, they burned your church down, the temple, and, and you were born in that culture and so you even have names that bear the marks of that. You might not even have access to Hebrew. Many of them couldn't, couldn't read their mother tongue because they were raised in a foreign culture. That's all you know. That's all these prophets know. Understand, like, all these guys know is an upbringing in captivity. The only knowledge of your people and your homeland are through stories from others and samples of Scripture. Think about it. If you had not seen it yourself, and you're being called to a, a, a place that, you know, you're like, why? You know, if you, if you were raised in America and then, and then you found out that actually, uh, whatever, you were adopted and you're from this like foreign land and, and, they're, and they're in the middle of a struggle and they're asking you to go and help, you're like, no, I'm, I'm cool. You know, I'm not trying to, I don't know any, I, I've never been there. I'm not, I'm from here. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to do any of that. The temple is gone. The towns are in ruins. Families are gone. Everything's in ashes. The streets are empty. It reminds me of the Avengers movie when they had the snap or the blip when Thanos, right, he got, he got the rings or whatever and goes, pap, and then universal genocide, 50% of life on earth just disintegrates into dust. Likewise, Israel's in the dust. And in the case of the Avengers, that only lasted five years, and then the Avengers went back in time and got the stones and reversed the blip. In the, in the movie Avengers Endgame in 2019, everyone who died in the blip were brought back and returned to their lives. Analogously, in the post-exilic era, Israel was similarly brought back to life. Unlike the Avengers, it was not the doing of Tony Stark or Iron Man or other fictional Avengers, but rather it was the doing of the factual Avenger, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who needs no stones of power to snap in his fingers, for he is all-powerful and thankfully all-loving and all-merciful and all-gracious. Amen? What, a, what an amazing God to be faithful in, 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 in spite of being dishonored, ignored. Apart from God's grace, Israel would have been left in the ashes. But God moves through Zechariah and Haggai to call the people of Israel, the people of covenant, to rebuild. And again, they were building what they had not seen. They hadn't seen this. What Zechariah and Haggai hadn't seen, God gives them eyes to see. That said, the prophets are burdened and history is moving. Haggai's eyes are open and, 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 and he's troubled. He's, he's got a heavy weight on himself. He's calling the people to wake up and the people aren't listening. It would be a discouraging thing. As a prophet, he's rather creative. He begins his oracle with a paronomasia, which is a play on words. For those of you who are here on time for our public reading of Scripture, we read it. Let me put it in front of you so you can see the play on words in the original language here. The book of prophecy, Haggai opens with his proclamation because the Lord's house lies desolate. You see that phrase in verse 4 and verse 9, lies desolate, and he uses the word harab. And then the Lord also calls then in response to the harab, he calls for horeb in verse 11. That is a drought upon the people, upon the land. God's covenant with Israel involved blessings and cursings, not just to the people, but also the land. Uh, it, it's, it's cray cray, modern, so we think it's kind of weird, you know, or it's like, oh, on the land, like what's with the land stuff or whatever. And yet at the same extent, we all know about environmental damages that are brought about as a result of human behavior. The way that we live impacts the land. And, and Israel, all the more especially, because their covenant entailed specifications about how God would bless the land and how God would bring discipline on the land because of the way that they live. And this goes back to Adam and Eve. In their sin, they brought curse to the land. And as a result, not only are we born in sin, creation itself is in sin. Not only are we in the process of dying, but creation itself is in the process of dying. We know from the laws of thermodynamics that the universe itself is expanding. It's running out of usable energy. It will reach universal heat death. The, the, the creation itself is in disarray. Our lives are in disarray. Why? Because we turned our backs on the God who created everything and gave it order and now there's disorder and death unlike feel-good megachurch and radio preachers who tickle ears 
Haggai drops the reality bomb on the people. And based on the chronological notations in the book itself, his ministry went on for, say, four months, maybe even longer. Unlike the prophet Jonah, he didn't have an instant revival. It was rough. But thankfully, he was not alone. He was not alone. He, Haggai had Zechariah. He had others. I'm so thankful for this in my own life. I've been pastoring in this church for 24 years now. And all through the, the, the process of pastoring, God has always had uh, pastors and men by my side in tough times. Uh, shout out to Pastor Tony in the back. Uh, currently, we've got m- uh, myself and Tony as the two pastors in the church. We've gone through seasons where we've had a lot uh, more pastors in the church, seasons of growth, se- seasons of shrinkage, seasons of ups and downs and all the rest. But God has always been faithful to, to, to have his word preached and to have men rallying around this. Zechariah, of course, thanks to God, uh, he, he drops prophecy just like Haggai. These men are not alone. Zechariah, through a series of eight visions that we studied in this series, in Zechariah chapters 1 through 8, he has eight visions. And then he has four sermons in chapters 7 through 8 of, uh, th- that he offers in the book of Zechariah. And the book ends with two burdens in Zechariah. So that's where we left off, okay? A lot of redundancy here, but I really want you to get this, this history as we're stepping in and we're harmonizing everything. I want you to have these prophets in mind. Um, I, want, I, I want you to have these prophets in mind because Ezra has them in mind. He's been talking about them. Ezra likely had their books or what would have been scrolls at the time, and he studied them longing for revival. Uh, these are texts, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, that, 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 that even today we return to. There, there's talks in North America out of, uh, out of Asbury of revival breaking across the nation. And in, in those conversations, we always come as the people of God to books like Ezra and Nehemiah. And we say, it, it, does it look like the revival that we see in Scripture and Ezra and Nehemiah and also the book of Acts in the New Testament? Now, Ezra 1.1, we read that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and the souls of those who returned to the land. So God wasn't just working through the prophets and the people. He was also working through unbelievers to bring about his plan and his purposes. So the people have been halted. The prophetic hope. Next, we move on the outline to the provincial haters. Revival and rebuilding would not be without battle. You say, I want, we want revival. You go, yeah, yeah, I want, I want revival. I want to see revival in Los Angeles. Yes, please, amen. But it, it, it takes sacrifice. It takes great sacrifice. And, there, and, and it, 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 will, it, will, it will require us to be willing to face confrontation. Look at verse 3, chapter 5, Ezra 5, 3. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani, and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them. Thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild the temple and to finish its structure? So there are forces that are at work behind the scenes trying to stop God. Let that sink in. When God's people do God's work, there are forces at work behind the scenes trying to stop. When, when, when God's people are on the move, when, they, when, when they're turning the corner of revival, you can expect the, the enemy to come in with as, which is, with, which is, with as much resources as possible to derail it. Keep in mind that they had been procrastinating for years, so the enemy had already won that part of it. Procrastination is itself a spiritual attack, and now they are going to face physical attacks. Uh, perhaps this is why they procrastinated in the first place. They knew that physical attacks were coming. And again, talking about this, we've got to be careful not to sit in judgment over our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith. We all put off things and avoid doing the difficult. We, we all let that horrible idea, I don't feel like it, come into our minds and entertain it. Whether you're putting off finishing a project for work, avoiding homework assignments, ignoring household chores, ignoring relationships, procrastination can have a major impact on your life, your grades, your, your family, your, 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 your health, and your worship. Israel's procrastination was impacting worship. In fact, their worship of stuff was in the way of their worship of God, as we saw at the beginning of service when we read Haggai. The prophets specifically attacked them for something that sounds very much like suburban, commercialized American dream that is derailing the church across the country today where people are chasing after bigger backyards, bigger houses, rather than doing the hard work of God's work, building the temple. The rebuild of the temple is huge. It's historic. God has brought the people back. More importantly, God was bringing His presence back. It's the porthole of the heavens. Build it, and His presence will come. 
Rebuilding the temple is all about this restoration of paradise lost. God is restoring His presence to the earth. God is gracious. So there is this man named Shethar Bozani, who is some sort of a government assistant in a position of power. The text says he came to them, we just read, and this government official came you know, to the Jewish people. And he appears to be concerned about their actions. Old Shethar wants to know, what are, what are you all doing? Specifically, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple? Well, the answer is God did. But old Shethar obviously isn't aware of that. He's living by sight and not by faith. He is acting based on what he sees and not on what is happening in the unseen realm. Further, he is acting on his power as a politician tied to Tatanai, who governed the provinces for the Persian Empire. If you look up here, I, I want you to have an idea of just how big the Persian Empire is. Here are the provinces of the empire that they controlled. I mean, looking at the vastness of the empire, you get the idea that, of, of the power that the imperial uh, uh, oppressors had. These politicians, no doubt, thought that this power was theirs to impose. So there comes Shethar, and he wants to impose himself on the Israelites. It would have been kind of like a city inspector showing up and asking for permits or whatever. Uh, you know, uh, in, in my own neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood's kind of changing a bit, and, you know, we recently had so somebody called uh, on like our toys and front lawn madness or whatever. And so we, we actually got like a, a served a ticket with a picture of our messy front lawn, you know. Like, are you serious? Uh, you guys are serious right now? And then the inspector, like eventually we catch him, he comes to the house, he goes, I know, I'm really sorry. I just, just trying to do my job, <laughs> you know. So unlike our overreaching government that wants a, a permit for everything, wants to act like I live in an HOA for Pete's sake, and wants an excuse to tax us and ticket us to feed the nanny state, I can understand Tatanai's predicament, I suppose. The Persian Empire is unstable. There were various revolts and unrest and whatnot, and they would have, you know, as a government employee, you might be a little bit on edge, and, you know, there's power hunger and what have you, and Darius himself had to scratch his way to the top. Darius was like Drake, started from the bottom, now he's here, you know, and he's like, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to leave it. Another reason for Tatanai's and Shethar's concern may have been, if you look up here, I quote from Dr. Lokin, the Jewish expectations of the coming Messiah. The Messiah was to rescue his people from bondage and build an empire from which he would rule the earth. In recent years, predictions concerning the coming Messiah, the king, were becoming more and more common. With each of these predictions, the expectations of the Jews were heightened. This expectation was surely known to the Persians, and the Persians, no doubt, well aware of the accuracy of Jewish prophecies. Uh, Dr. Lokin is on point here. The prophecy of Zechariah is very vivid and confident in declaring a Messiah is going to come. Who will be king, and who will reign, and who will rebuild a temple? It's no wonder, then, that things would get heated, which brings us to the next point. We move from the provincial haters to the problem heating up. Look at verse 4. Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. The man wants to see some ID. Can I see some ID? What is your name, right? Keep in mind, this is before the DMV. Oh, the good old days, right? Before the DMV. So this is more than ID cards. The people are refugees who are leaving a place and returning to a place. They're refugees. So the government, you know, is in a position to say, I want to see your government papers documenting that you have permission, that you're actually refugees as opposed to escapees. Without the proper papers, things could go bad, but God has their backs. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. Oh, I love this phrase. The eye of the Lord was on them. Uh, now, of course, it should go without saying that God is not a cyclops, right? The eye of God. He's not a cyclops. This is anthropomorphic language to describe the providential care of God and his watching over the people. Further, this phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture, and I have in mind specifically Deuteronomy 11:12. I'll show you it in a moment. That speaks of God's covenantal attention, not just to the people, but also to the land. And we've talked about his covenant with the people in the land. Look at Deuteronomy 11:12. A land for which the Lord your God cares, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, the land, beginning even to the end of the year. So the eyes of the Lord are on the land and on the people. It's worth noting that in that culture, government officials in that day were also known as the king's eyes. So Tatanai, you know, people in his culture would have said, oh, there's the king's eyes, Tatanai. And so Ezra is letting us know, Tatanai is not the king's eyes. The true king's eye is on his people. The true king who eternally dwells as father, son, and spirit. The true king who is revealed in Jesus Christ, the incarnate son. 
the God of Israel, the God of creation. He's watching over them and also the shenanigans of these imperial powers. Verse 5, look at it again. The eye of the Lord was on the elders of the Jewish people, did not stop them until a report could come to Darius and then a written reply be uh, returned concerning it. So Tatanai lets them go, but it ain't over. Word is sent to the new emperor, Darius. Uh, you know, he wants, to, he wants to know what's the haps on the craps. He wants to shake some things up there. So verse 6, continuing the text, this is a copy of the letter of Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar, Bozani, and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, uh, sent to Darius the king. So now we move from the providential haters, the problem heating up, to the paper's help. In verses 6 through 17, we have a copy or a quote from, a, from an email, if you will, a letter. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but you can multitask reading this section as I'm just explaining and summarizing because we have to move fast. In verses 6 through 17, this government letter recording this run-in with the Jewish refugees returning home, claiming that the government's, uh, they, they claim that they had the government's permission to do so to rebuild their temple. It even mentions that the government gave back some of the booty stolen from the temple when it was sacked and destroyed by Babylon. And then the letter ends by asking the emperor to confirm the claims. Look at verse 17. Now if it pleases the king, smooch, smooch, you know, they're all cozy with the king. Let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. And if it be a decree that was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of the God at, at Jerusalem, let the king send us his decision concerning the matter. So this leaves us on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Well, we will see this paper actually helps because the emperor looks into the government files. He starts scrolling through his Dropbox and he finds, uh, by golly, uh, Cyrus did say they could go. So we move from the problem heating up, the paper's help, to the prince's hand. And this gets us into chapter 6. Quickly, draw your eyes at chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Then King Darius issued a decree, and the search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found and was written on it as follows. Memorandum. Let's pause for a second so I can show you some cool archaeology. Now, the word for uh, memorandum or memorial in the Hebrew is zekaron, which in Aramaic is dikron, dikron. This is the same Aramaic word that is actually discovered in an ancient papyrus that is known today as the elephantine papyra and ostraca. These were discovered, the elephantine papyri and ostraca, in 1815 all the way through 1904 by archaeologists and it contains thousands of documents in various ancient languages including Aramaic that date back to this era we are studying. So the elephantine documents have letters, legal contracts from the government, from families. It gives us all kinds of insight into epistolography, law, society, religion, linguistics. So in elephantine this is a, a, it's a, if you're not aware, it's an, it's, an, it's, an, it's an island in the Nile, a small island in the Nile. And there was one situated there, a Jewish military colony, and they had a temple there for worship. Uh, you know, it was a time of war, they needed a place of worship, they had a place of worship there. And in these documents, we have a papyrus in Aramaic that uses the word dikron in reference, follow me, to the Persian government giving the Jewish people permission to rebuild their temple in Elephantine. Here, let me show you a picture of it. Now, I show you this again, as I showed you other things earlier in the message, because skeptics like to attack the Bible. They always make believe, oh, there's no historical evidence for this. You know, Jews returning to Jerusalem to rebuild. We don't have any evidence of that. And you're like, okay, uh, actually, we do have a ton, and this is just one example. We have a, a, a Persian leader sending them back to the land, using the same wording that we would find in an Aramaic translation of the text in front of us in Ezra. Archaeology supports the biblical history, so we know outside of the Bible about the Persian Empire and its handlings with the Jewish people and others. Speaking of others, we know that Darius rebuilt the, an Egyptian temple of Hibis that was dedicated to Egyptian gods Amon and Osiris. Here, let me show you a picture of that. You're getting some archaeology this morning. It's cool. Are you enjoying it? Are you having fun? Are you having fun? Are you following me? Now notice on this picture, you got Darius, who is greeting Egyptian gods. Darius is paying homage to Egyptian gods. This is on the outer wall of this huge relief. So, so the thing is, we know that the Persian emperors were cool with letting subjected peoples rebuild temples because it actually worked with their political propaganda machine. Hey, we, you know, we took over, we took over, so now you're our subjects. 
But you know what? We're not like Babylon. We're not like these other busters. You have your temples. Have your temples. You can have your temples. You know, because it's easier to let them have some semblance of their life and some freedom than it is to have a war with them. This was true in the first century with the Roman Empire and the Jewish people in Jerusalem. It's just a succession of different empires taking over lands, and some will crush everyone, like Babylon, and others who are smart about it, well, you know, you can do your own thing. Here, here, here's some money to go rebuild some temples. Don't you like me? Aren't you happy being a part of the Persian Empire? Isn't it nice? Don't you want to sign up again? Don't you want to get our newsletter? Click like, click subscribe, hit the bell for updates, right? Because we're so good at this. Verse 3, in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of the God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where the sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt. Let his foundations be retained. Right? And so, so they dig in the archives and they read and they go, oh, like this really happened. Verse 6, now therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethnar, Bonzai, your colleagues, the officials of the provinces, leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders rebuild this house on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for the elders of, of Judah in rebuilding this house of God. The full cost is to be paid that these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces from the river do, it, do that. Whatever is needed by them, young bulls, rams, lambs, uh, a burnt offering for the, for the house of their God, wheat, salt, wine, anointing, oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, you do it. The haters must have been so mad about that. You know, it's like, hey, not only are you going to let them build, but you're going to help them. And whatever they need, you're going to give them. Get them some gift cards to save on, CVS, Ralph's, you know, give them whatever they need. The emperor gave them favor. However, it is God who is pulling the strings. It is God who is giving them favor. And remember, they didn't have it coming. This is a people who were brought back to the land and said, heck to the naw, I'm going to build my house. I'm going to enjoy my life. I, I, I'm not, God's work, that's low. You know, I got games, I got stuff to do. I'm not doing all that. They didn't deserve this. And now God is lavishing all of this on them. Not, not, not only, not only uh, uh, now are you, you, you've been called to rebuild, but I'm actually going to bring pagans to give you money to help you do the work. This reminds us of God's grace in Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we, weren't, we weren't looking for Him. We were lost. And we weren't even interested in being found. And He came and rescued us while we were kicking and screaming against Him. Unbelieving and undesiring of Him, He comes and rescues us and lavishes His grace upon us and gives Himself as a sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to the Father. Speaking of sacrifices, look at verse 10 that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pay for the life of the king and his sons. This is coming from the pagans. It's an indictment on the people. It's like even the pagans are more interested in this. The sacrifices of the temple, of course, historically look forward to the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. The reason for returning the people to the land to rebuild the temple was to prepare the way for the Messiah who would walk the halls of that very temple that they are going to build, who would preach the gospel in that very temple that they were to build. This is exactly what happens in the historical Jesus of Nazareth. He walked those halls. He cleaned those halls. He preached the gospel there and throughout the land of Israel. More than preaching, he fulfilled the shadows of the temple of sacrifice. He fulfilled the prophecies of Israel concerning the suffering of the Messiah. Let me show you just one prophecy quickly. We have to move fast, but... Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, says, the Messiah, he's despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. This is hundreds of years before the Roman Empire and the development of crucifixion. The prophets saw that the Messiah would come and suffer and be, be pierced. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned on his own. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He's like a lamb led to slaughter. Verse 9, his grave was assigned among wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. 
Because he has done no violence, Isaiah says, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This is the gospel. Behold the man of Nazareth who was crushed for us, who was pierced for us. All of our guilt, all of our shame, all of your procrastinations and the things that God has called you to do that you're not doing, all, all, all of your rebellion against him, all of your secret sins, all the areas of your life where you've grown cold and calloused, all of it, all of your sin, past, present, and future, all of it was poured out on his back. And he calls out to you to receive his perfect sacrifice, to receive his forgiveness, to have your guilt and shame lifted, to, to come to him and be forgiven. And he alone can do that because of who he is. One, he's the perfect man who dies in our place. Second, he's not merely a man, he is God, and it is God's prerogative to forgive. As God the Son, he extends forgiveness. As the perfect son of Adam and Abram and David, he fulfills the promises of God. Behold your Savior, Jesus, church. Speaking of Jesus and with Ezra in front of us, I didn't mention it earlier, but if you look at Ezra 5.2 and you notice, Zerubbabel is said to be the son of who? Sheltiel. And speaking of Jesus, Sheltiel is in line with the Messianic genealogies in the New Testament. Matthew 1.12, Luke 3.27. The thing is, scholars note that Zerubbabel was the last of the Davidic line to be entrusted with the political authority by the occupying powers. And Jesus would be the one who picks up that authority, who picks up that line and fulfills it. All of this happens in history. Again, I'm showing you archaeology. I'm showing you, look, we have reasons for believing these things. Our faith is rooted in factual history. In fact, where we left off in verse 10 with this line about pray for the life of the king, you see that? Again, it's a pagan saying pray for the life of the king. Well, that language is used in the Cyrus Cylinder. I showed you a picture of the Cyrus Cylinder in the beginning. Here's a, another uh, look at the Cyrus Cylinder. In the Cyrus Cylinder, you have the same language. They say, say, pray for the king that my days may be long, the Cyrus Cylinder says. And scholars note that according to the Greek historian Herodotus, it was customary for the Persian rulers to ask, ask for the, the, the other religions and other temples. They would ask for them to pray for the king when they made sacrifices and they worshipped. So, so again, what we see here is in the archaeology. Let's finish the final verses and land the plane. De plane, de plane. Okay, Ezra 6, 11. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he'll be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a refuge heap on account of this. Uh, a, a, a porta potty, doo-doo, okay? So that's, that's pretty harsh. If you, if you mess around with this, we're going to take a piece of wood off of your house, nail you to it, and turn your house into a porta potty. That's, that's pretty harsh. Uh, May, verse 12, the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. So Darius gives his stamp of approval for the people to rebuild. We're going to stop our study there. And by way of conclusion, some quick practical hands-on. I have three quick points that will bring us to the communion table and our final uh, time of worship as we sing and respond to God's Word. Three quick points. One, don't delay. Don't delay. Uh, that, that's, a clear, that's a clear application pastorally from the text. Don't put off for tomorrow what God has called you to do today. Today is the day to get started, brothers and sisters. Ever start something you didn't finish? Of course you have. We all have. How about this? Ever restart something and then stop it again? You know, ever pick up those piano lessons and then stop and then pick them up again or, you know, try to get that black belt or I don't know, whatever, you, you keep stopping and starting or whatever. We, we all go through that. I've had buddies that had cars that they were going to fix up and they never did. Those of you who live on my block, you know my one buddy in the yellow house that has that thing sitting in the driveway forever. I mean, the car just sits there, it just sits there. You know, and you're like, when, when are you going to get back to that? Well, ancient Israel was in ruins. The people were sent back to rebuild. God paved the way for the return. They started to build and then they stopped. The project was paused. The people got preoccupied. They were procrastinating. They were spending their, their money and their time and their resources on doing what they want to do. Sixteen years have passed. Imagine the scene. You can see the weeds, the trash, the dirt, the doo-doo, the, the debris, just all of it. You're like, that's where the temple's supposed to be, you guys. By way of application for us today, we might think, well, Pastor Matt, I mean, don't stretch the text here. We don't have a temple to build. 
Uh, but you would be mistaken if you thought that, because in the New Testament we are told that the temple of God is the church of Jesus Christ in this age. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Ephesians 2, I could go on. So with this in mind, and also with Israel's failure in mind, we need to reflect on how we personally, as the church of Jesus Christ, have failed to fulfill our responsibilities in the current temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the local body. Look around, this is the temple. For us, for us, this is the temple. These people in this room, and those who couldn't make it this morning, this is, this is our temple. So serving and giving here is, is our responsibility that God has called us to do. That is a clear pastoral application of the text we're studying. And so the question for us is, are we serving and giving here faithfully, or are we just sporadically coming and tipping? If everyone in the church, let me ask you, dear brother, sister, if everyone in the church here showed and served and gave and shared the gospel the way you do, would the church be thriving more or less or stagnant? Of course, we all carry uh, and juggle guilt for failing in our responsibilities at home, work, relationships, our own self-care. But think about our collective personal failings in placing uh, God, in placing His church above all things as we've been called to do. That said, what forces in our culture tempt us and trapped us from, from being involved here at Delray Church? I think of consumerism, media addiction, youth sports, family idolatry, false idols, placing things over the church, matters of mental health, because no doubt things like anxiety and other can, can, can feed into our procrastination and our lack of involvement. That said, God is more powerful than it all, and He can deliver us from these things. And, and, and ultimately, He is the one Delray Church who is building our church, and so we can run to Him and say, Lord, give us joy in Your service. Lord, Lord stir in us a heart to rebuild what you have started here in the 1950s. Give us, give us a spirit of sacrifice to give to this end. And where we feel guilt and shame for not prioritizing his body, may we find forgiveness and renewal. Don't delay, church. That's the first application. Number two, don't be discouraged. Uh, on the one hand, there are some who need to hear a call like Haggai and Zechariah because uh, there, there are many in churches who are spending their priorities on their stuff and not the people of God. On the other hand, there are many who are, who you're laboring, you're laboring, you're laboring, and you get discouraged. You, you feel like you're alone. You look around and others aren't serving like, like the way that you're serving, and, you're, and you feel alone. And so I want to say to you by way of application, don't be discouraged. You know, sometimes it takes time. The fact of the matter is, most times it takes time. Matter of fact, let's just say all the time it takes time. We mustn't let discouragement demobilize us. Discouragement derails. Feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, a lack of energy, it can make, a, it, make it difficult to start and restart things that we need to do. In the simplest of things in our lives, let alone the big things like Christ's church in Los Angeles, think of what a crazy task the triune God of heaven has given to Delray Church. Before the pastor who planted this church, I had the privilege of knowing him. Uh, he, he left it in, in years of discouragement. Um, he told me before he passed away, he said, that, that church is never going to grow. People don't want to be there. There's just a darkness over that area of Los Angeles. It, it, it's going to be a struggle. It's like, oh, thanks. I was meeting <laughs> with you for uh, some encouragement. This is very discouraging. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'll see you next time. We have been given a task in a very hard place. It compares nothing to what Israel was given, coming out of Babylon and going back to the land. So we can read this and we can find encouragement for the task. Don't delay, don't be discouraged. Finally, don't do it alone. Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, they weren't alone. As noted for us in the age that we are in, the church is the temple. And hence, doing God's work requires that we're not doing it alone. There ought to be no such thing as a churchless Christian. And by church, I don't mean watching online or listening to sermons on Christian radio or whatever. I mean active union, and fellowship, and service, and membership, and prayer, and love, and, and giving, and more in the body. I have in mind growing in deep relationships and friendships. More than friendships, God has made us family. God has given us this place, Delray Church, to, to be a family. And families are families. Families don't, don't act like 
people outside of the family. Families look out for each other. Fam families are, are nepotistic. We take care of each other. A being in family reminds us that we have a common father. Being in family reminds us how God became our father because he sent his son. A being in family reminds us not just of the son and the father, but by the, the, the spirit who is the one who acted as our social worker, bringing us spiritual orphans into the family of God. Being in the family reminds us not only of who we are relationally, but it reminds us that our triune God is with us. We're the temple. He's dwelling among us, the New Testament tells us. In Ezra 5.5, 5, we read about the eye of God was on His people. And so, church, this means that we are never alone. He is with us. And Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 28 that He would be with them to the ends of the earth. And that's where we are. We are a long way from Rome. We're a long way from Babylon and Persia. We're a long way from Jerusalem, where it all began. And the Lord saw fit to spread His gospel around the earth and plant a church in downtown L.A., in the 1800s. And that church went out and planted this church in the 1950s. And we continue sending workers into the harvest. But brothers and sisters, if we are to send workers into the harvest, if we are to see genuine revival, it begins here with us as family. And as family, we're reminded, as I said, of our Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, of what He has made us, brothers and sisters. And it also reminds us of what is before us now in communion. You know, every family has a table. Families have tables. Families share meals together. And what communion is, is it is a meal that has been given to us by our big brother Jesus, that we can come before his Father and be reminded of his work. So I invite us all as I close in prayer and we enter into a time of song that as we sing, come to the table. More important than coming to the table, come to Christ. If you, if, you have yet, if you have yet to ask Him for the forgiveness of your sins, ask Him today. Don't delay. Don't put it off. If you've been found in Him, come to Christ again in repentance and faith every day, especially on Lord's Day. Come to the table. Come to Him. Seek His forgiveness. Seek Him to set a fire under you for the things in your personal life you're procrastinating over, but more importantly, for the things that we collectively procrastinate over in seeking to see God magnify His name in our church and in this city. Come to the table. Come to Him. Let's worship Him. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the hope we have in the Gospel. Thank You for the picture of the Gospel before us in the table. Thank You for the family that is about to come to the table. Thank You for our brother Landon as he leads us in song while we eat and we sing and we pray. Lord, while, while hopefully we, we repent and we come to You to, to find power and encouragement and, and, and healing, may we find You today. May we be changed by You today. Have Your way with us as we come to the table and close our service in corporate song. In Christ's name, amen.